0: the end. Give me understanding and I will keep your law. Pay it with all my heart. Direct me in the path of your commands. For there I find delight. Turn my heart towards your statutes, not towards selfish gain. Mm. Turn my eyes away from worthless. Preserve my life according to your word. Fill your promise. To your, fill your promise to your servant so that you may be feared. Take away the disgrace I dread. your laws are good how I long for your precepts preserve my life in your righteousness
1: hey nice sweet stuff there okay we got a couple announcements here we have 40 days for life has begun it's you know go down stand outside Planned Parenthood pray whatever do your speech Darlene here who she's back from North Carolina got here Sunday and she has already been yesterday gave her testimony down there she opened them and um, she will be willing to lead the church if the church wants to go down there on any given day during the 40 days. You have to coordinate with her, and um, she'll just go down and participate. One day is all she would ask, so we would hope that people would get involved here, and if you're online, get involved where you're at. 40 days for life, might as well make a stand for the unborn. We complain about it on Facebook, might as well do something about it beyond that. Um, Let's see here. Um, Okay, this is important. Is everybody awake? Yes. Daylight savings time, <laughs> Saturday night, spring forward. If you don't spring forward and you come to church late, don't come to church. Okay. No, um, no it'd be late.
0: Yes.
1: It's late, isn't it? No,
0: we're losing an hour. We're losing an hour. Oh,
1: so an hour. oh good. Well then come early. That's fine. Forget what I just said. Spring um, forward. Fall I know. But then I thought that means that, no. okay, whatever. Is <laughs> Don't forget to change your clocks on Saturday night. Yes. Um, Bill and Patty, the missionaries that are out in Arizona, uh, Mission One, uh, Bill is going to lose his position. And so that's really difficult because they just moved out there and they've never been fully funded. And now it's only Patty. And so they really need prayer. They need prayer to know the Lord's will and to do whatever they need to do for, you know, if somebody has an idea for mission service for them, let them know. Let me know and I'll let them know if you don't have their email whatever um, but th- this is something that's important and it's uh, I would just ask people to keep them in prayer because they were already stepping out in faith and now it's it's a giant step uh, then we have Graham in Scotland I was just told that he had to be taken out of the hospital because they were so full and so he's on a bunch of antibiotics he, he's at home but he's probably should be at the hospital and his mother just died and so that's one more burden in his life that uh, he could do without and um, I will say this now, and I'm going to say it again, probably Sunday as well. But you know, I'm always telling you, take advantage of today. As a matter of fact, we'll close with um, uh, one of the verses that Paul says, "Today is the day of salvation. Now is the time of God's favor." On Sunday, that's what we're going to close with—not our closing verse, but that's how I'm going to close the sermon. And I say this all the time. You know, be prepared to meet your Lord. Be prepared to tell somebody about Jesus while you can. Grandma's been telling his mother for eons for, about Jesus. But it's a perfect example for you all to hold to is that uh, Jennifer, who attends here, she's here on Sunday mornings when she's not working on Sunday at Foxy Lady. Her cousin was in church last week and died in church. So, yeah, I always say you might walk out the door and get run over. He didn't even get a chance to get out the door. So let learn your lessons about the brevity of life learn new lessons about telling people about jesus instead of being timid and keeping your mouth shut tell people about jesus that you don't know if you're going to see that person again and the weight is on you when they have gone and you haven't done your job okay and then make sure that you're right with the lord too because some people may think they're right with the lord if you're doing anything to please god other than having faith in what christ has done you're not right with the Lord okay you need to be right with the Lord by putting your faith in Christ and that is it he died for your sins he went into the grave he was resurrected proving that he was sinless that is the gospel and that is what you're asked to believe anything beyond that that you think you're doing to earn God's favor observing the law not eating certain foods you're displeasing to God you're not pleasing to God you need to make sure that the gospel is simple and pure in your life so lesson said we'll go ahead and ask the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, you know that uh, Graham is facing two difficulties in his life right now, and we would certainly pray for them. And we would also pray that people would be active during the 40 Days for Life that's going on all over America, that they would have a heart to at least make a stand, if nothing else, to post on their social media. We support, you know, the freedom of human life to continue and not to be executed in the womb and we pray that people would even go beyond that and go out and just stand outside of planned parenthood with a sign saying this is wrong lord give us the boldness to at least do these things and to show that we care and uh lord we just thank you for all of the good blessings you've given us we certainly pray for bill and patty who have got many blessings in their lives but they also have stress now that they're facing what are they going to do they moved from sarasota to serve you and they don't know and you will lead them but help them in their anxiety in the process and Lord we pray for those who are in Kenya that are trying to uh, establish that church and to buy it and to uh, even build a new one if possible and that they would have funding that would work out for them and that uh, we thank you for some people that have already given to that and helped out in that cause so that they're moving right along towards at least the purchase of the property and Lord we just thank you for all the blessings that you've given us we ask that you bless this time together in the Bible study We thank you for it it's so precious to be in your presence and to share in your word how good it is how good and pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity especially in the presence of you and your word so we commit this time to you and we just love you we praise you and we exalt you in Jesus name Amen
0: Amen.
1: and before we get too far into it we have somebody visiting from Georgia that uh, came uh, uh, she attends online she's one of the people that gets the sermon every single week in advance and uh, I don't know if she peaks or not but she does get it and then um, she uh, decides she wanted to come down visit and so she's staying with us for five days and uh, there you go this is Lynn she's here visiting so one of your uh, one of your uh, online people that uh, knows all of you by face and now you know her by face and she'll be here uh, mission work on Saturday good job if so she, that's what they look like. uh, yes, that's what that's what they look like. The, um, uh, you know, if she came here, and I went to the airport to pick her up, and I did something I haven't done in forty years, is my friend sent me a baseball cap. It was a Chicken Alaska baseball cap, and I went to the the yeah Chicken. They couldn't spell ptarmigan, so they called it Chicken. And it's a true story. Anyway, um, uh, so it, it, I was stationed out of there when I mined gold up in Alaska. And so I was wearing a baseball cap in here, and I'm walking around looking for her, and she's sitting right there. She didn't know it was me. So, oh, yeah, she was like, oh, I'm looking for a bandana. Think. I just ignored oh, the guy with the hat on. Yes. So, oh, and uh, she came here, and she was very calm and very normal. And then after a day, a day with the chihuahuas, she woke up this morning. <laughs> she was shaking and convulsing. And so we'll see if she can survive the next five days. But, okay, here we go. We're in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 8. Six. Six 8.
0: eight. eight. Alright, how far do you want me to back? Up? I don't However care. I go back wherever,
1: make wherever it makes you happy. Because I through, haven't turned to that yet.
0: Let's go through five completely until we get to the eight. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, a kind that does not occur even among pagans. Man has his father's wife. And you were proud. Shouldn't you rather have been filled with grief and have put your put out your fellow fellowship the man who did this? Even though I'm not physically present, I am with you in spirit. I have already passed judgment on the one who did this, just as if I were present. When you were uh, assembled in the name of our Lord Jesus, and I am with you in spirit, the power of your Lord Jesus is present. Hand this man over to Satan, so that the sinful nature may be destroyed and his spirit saved on the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do not... Don't you know that a little yeast works through the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast that you may have. May be a new batch without yeast, as you really are. For Christ, our Passover Lamb has been sacrificed. A while to get there, but therefore let us keep the festival not with old yeast, the yeast of malice and wickedness, but with bread without yeast, the bread of sincerity and truth.
1: Can we help you, ma'am? must be be my mom Um, okay before we get into this verse I I, I completely forgot to say something it's been on my mind all day and then I sat down, and you brought up Graham, and it just threw off my mind, not blaming you, but I can only hold one thing at a time. Uh Miss Magnuson is at home. She's out of the hospital, and she's at home. home. Yes, they were going to send her to a facility for a couple weeks. Now, she went home. She's feeling strong enough, so she went there. I went to visit her today. She looks wonderful. They say she walked all the way out to the mailbox, but she's still in pain. We still want to pray for her, but really, really happy about this is that she she is home, and she's— You know, that's the best medicine is not being in a hospital or, a you know, so praise God for that. And if she's here, we love you. All of us love you very much if you're with us. So I'm so sorry for just letting that slip out of my head, but I'm so happy. And she looked wonderful. The family was there visiting. Great stuff. Okay, so I'm going to read that verse again. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with the old leaven, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness. But with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So you can see, once again, the idea of leaven causes things to get puffed up. And then he says you have the old leaven. And then he says, nor with the leaven of malice or wickedness. Okay, so these things cause the congregation to get stirred up. It causes it to be, uh, you know, become an infected unit. And as I said with the Methodist church, the leaven is already there. It's already there. They they have the people in there that support these agendas. If it wasn't for the uh, uh, African Congress, I said this on Sunday, but if it wasn't for them, it, they would have voted in, you know, Methodist-wide LGBT. And now they're, I read an article a day ago that says that they're, the uh, people that were voted down are actually looking to split the church so that they can have their way. The leaven is there. Once it's in, it, it's in. So, this is, he's asking us not to let it in, and if it in, to excise it. And that's what we're going through here. So, as was noted in the previous verse, the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread of the Old Testament pictured or foreshadowed the work of Christ. Paul claims their fulfillment is found in him. As these were feasts of the Lord, meaning Jehovah, the connection is obvious. Jesus Christ is Jehovah incarnate. How people miss this is rather remarkable. Think of it now. These are the feasts of the Lord. There's eight feasts of the Lord. There's the Sabbath. In him, those who believe in him, we have entered our rest. Then you have the feast of um, Passover, okay? Christ our Passover is fulfilled, uh, is uh, sacrificed for us. And then we have the feast of unleavened bread, and he is the one that makes us unleavened. We are in him, and this is the unleavened bread of the church, or it should be, okay? And then you go to the next one, the feast of weeks, And it's the picture of Shavuot, the first, uh, uh, I'm sorry, the next one is Bikarim, which is the uh, uh, fruits. He is the first from the grave. And each one of these feasts, all the way the Day of Atonement, yes, the fall feasts are fulfilled. They are done. Anybody that tells you the fall feasts are yet to be fulfilled is not correct. They have been fulfilled. They are fulfilled. And if they're not fulfilled, then Christ didn't fulfill the law. If the law isn't fulfilled, we're following the wrong guy. He fulfilled the law, all of it, including all eight feasts of the Lord seven annual, one um, uh, weekly one, okay? As they are all fulfilled in Christ, and they are the feasts of Jehovah of the Old Testament, then that means that Jesus is Jehovah. He's the Lord God. He is the one that fulfilled these feasts. That is the point of calling them the feasts of the Lord. When people say these are Jewish feasts, or when they say these are the feasts of Israel, it diminishes what God has done in Jesus Christ. It is absconding with the glory of the Lord and giving it to a lesser. I don't care how important Israel is in redemptive history. They're lesser. It is Jesus who fulfilled them. It is the feast of the Lord and all eight are fulfilled. Okay, I know people disagree with that. They can be wrong all they want. They are done. Watch the sermons and you will see that. Yes. Wasn't
0: always called the feast of the Lord? Always.
1: Never anything but. Never. Anything but. Except in our decision to call them the feast of Israel. And when people say... They'll start out correctly in their analysis. They'll come and they'll say, these are the feasts of the Lord. I've heard this. I've I got one over there that somebody sent me and it's a series of them. And I listened and right at the beginning. these are the feasts of the Lord. And by the time they got to the fall feasts, they changed the they equivocated on the meaning and name of them by saying they are the feasts of Israel. And the reason why they did that is because their theology says that they're not fulfilled yet. And they are to be fulfilled in Israel. That's incorrect. They're fulfilled in Christ. Israel is just late coming to them. That's the difference. They're done. Israel has not yet come in. We have. We're the Gentiles and we understand this. Israel does not. And I'm talking about collective Israel. Okay. Because their fulfillment is found in him. And because we are in Christ, Paul says, therefore. The coming words explain our duties based on our position in him. He fulfilled these feasts and we are in him. Everybody understand that? Therefore. Okay. So we'll go on. And what does he... Detail for us then, he says, let us keep the feast. In other words, we could say, because Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us, let us keep the fe- the rest of the feast of unleavened bread. It's one thing, Passover and unleavened bread. It's actually two feasts, but anyway, it is a metaphor asking us to consider our position in Christ, in him, the sinless lamb of God. He is our Passover, uh, Passover lamb. He was sacrificed for us, therefore let us keep the feast. Okay, meaning unleavened bread. Let us be unleavened before the Lord. Christ is the fulfillment of the Passover. Because of his shed blood, God has passed over us, and we are now found in him. Because we are in him, we should keep the feast, as Paul says, not with leaven. What we once were and the way we once acted are no longer appropriate ways of conducting our lives. If Christ had to die to redeem us, then there must have been a need for him to redeem us, right? We can't miss these simple truths that keep coming up. If Christ died for our sins, then that means that we were sinners. We have sin in us, right? All of these things are simple truths, but we don't think them through all the time. And we need to always bring it back to the simple. Christ did these things specifically for me and for you. And, you know, it, it, it is personal, Okay. Why would we continue in a life that necessitated his death to get us out of it? That old life consisted of the leaven, as Paul says, of malice and wickedness. This is certainly a reference to what necessitated his words in the first place. The man caught up in sexual immorality, who is noted in verses 1 through 5, is being used as an example of such a debased life. And it is a lifestyle which is contradictory to holy living in Christ. Instead of following such a path, Paul implores those in Corinth, and thus the church, which remains to this day, that we should instead keep the feast with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So you've got malice and wickedness over here. You've got sincerity and truth over here. He says, it's your choice. How are you going to live out your time in the Lord? Here we go. Jesus Christ is sinless. We are in Christ. Therefore, our conduct should be reflective of the position we hold. Okay, that's not always the case in churches. we got people that are saved believers and they don't act it at all. It's right next to your hand. There it goes um, in any way, shape or form. But it was funny. I was, I was waiting for that to happen. You're doing one of these. Anyway, Um. Uh, so the Feast of Unleavened Bread, a feast mandated by God for Israel 3,500 years ago, pictured those in the church age who have been redeemed by Jesus Christ. It was only a picture back then. That's why when we say the feasts are fulfilled why? Because there aren't any more pictures to be fulfilled in Christ. He's fulfilled all of the law pictures. There are other pictures coming. But I'm talking about those under the law in his need to fulfill them in order for it to be finished. All is finished. It is complete. Yes. Okay. That's why he said on the cross, he didn't say, I've got three more to go. Can't wait. He didn't say that. All right. So um, it's uh, we're uh, living in the feast, meaning unleavened bread. And thus we should follow the example Holy living for those who have been declared sinless. Anything else would be contradictory to the honorable position to which we have been elevated. We live that way. I know we do. We get unholy at times, but it's contradictory to what Christ has done for us. We're given the choice, and we will stand before him, and it will be our rewards or our losses. Is Mabel okay, doctor? No, she's not
0: feeling well.
1: Okay, we'll add her into our prayers at the end then. Okay, I saw you walking. I thought maybe she was just... Walking in later and she's not here, so we'll have her in prayer. Okay, life application. The Old Testament is not a compilation of outdated and useless books. Instead, it is the very tool we need to fully understand the marvelous work of God in Christ. Why we need him, what his work entails, and how his work applies to us. When Paul says Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us, unless you know what the Passover details, you have no idea what that means. You can just say, okay, it's our Passover lamb. But unless you know all of the details, you're lacking something in your theology. The Old Testament is highly important, and I'm so glad that we do Old Testament during Sunday sermons. In New Testament during the Bible studies because we get a full roundness to our theology that is severely lacking in many places and that's not any compliment to me that's just the fact that we started in Genesis and it's taken a while to get out of the Old Testament I thought it would go faster I thought we'd be to Matthew by now it hasn't happened okay let us not forsake reading studying and sharing the whole counsel of God found in both testaments of the Bible Verse five nine
0: I have written you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people
1: okay if we stop right there you would think that is the end of the matter don't hang around with anybody that's sexually immoral that is not the end of the matter okay we'll read the verses and we'll be done with this chapter today I'm sure but just understand that when somebody cites that they need to cite the context but we'll go on first this verse is not a standalone verse If one were to cite it as a standalone, a false impression of what Paul intends will inevitably be the result. I'm going to give you an example because I was sitting in Bible class years ago at Temple Baptist Church, and the pastor was making his his appeal, as he did week after week, that you are not to drink any alcohol at all, forbidden. Then he said, he quoted, woe to you who give strong drink to your brother or to your neighbor. And I said, wow, couldn't believe it. Couldn't believe it. Does anybody know the verse? Woe to you who give strong drink to your neighbor or those who give strong drink to their neighbor that they, may not, that they may look on their nakedness. In other words, get them drunk so you can be a pervert with them. All right, that is taking things out of context. Thank you. All right, if you're going to cite a verse and half of the verse can be taken, that's fine. If it cannot without changing the intent, do not do it. Okay. And I immediately I was like, well, that wasn't very smart. I mean, that, that that wasn't even close to smart. That was mishandling of scripture. And it was from somebody I respected immensely. But he's got this thing in his head and therefore he is going to do this. Don't do that. Okay. Anyway, we'll go on. Uh, unfortunately, it's often used in this way and it becomes a verse which is used as a tool to disgrace believers who have done nothing wrong. Context is always of paramount consideration when citing Scripture. The words I wrote to you in my epistle indicate that either he had written another letter to those in Corinth, which is not included in the Bible, or that he is referring to what he just said in his previous thought in verses 5-4 and 5-5, which is probably the case. Either way, in this he admonished them to send the sexually immoral offender out of the congregation. What is important here concerning this not being a standalone verse is that Paul is reckoning the person who is to be expelled as a believer, because he is a believer. Keeping company with him would lead the lead to the perception that his actions were acceptable. That's why you're to get the person out of the congregation, because they're not acceptable. These perceptions would be held by the offender and by those who saw the offender and who were unschooled in the Lord's commands. Concerning sexual immorality, everybody understand that perception is what Paul expects in the church. Okay, that's why when you see these things that happened in that UMC this past week, I I, I, I just can't believe it. The the people wearing all those things at the uh, the rainbow colors all over at the national thing, and they're they're moaning, they're weeping out loud at the judgment, like it was the worst thing in the world that they are actually doing something that the Bible says don't do right I I just couldn't believe it but that's where they're at right now and every one of them should be expelled every single one of them in order for that yeast to be out they won't do it and it will continue and it will only get worse because they're not following the Bible Um, let's see here as we will see Paul goes on to make a distinction between socializing with believers and unbelievers and keeping company with sexually immoral people keep things in context life application Context in is king in interpreting the Bible. Anyone can form any doctrine, like don't drink because woe to you who give drink to your neighbor, strong drink to your neighbor, by tearing verses out of their intended context. However, it takes study, care, and continued diligence to properly interpret and rightly divide the word of God based on context. Be approved. Consider context at all times. Verse 510. Not at all meaning the
0: people of this world who are immoral or the greedy and swindlers and idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave this world.
1: Does everybody understand what you just read? Because the previous verse says, Do not, do not, uh, in my epistle, to keep company, associate or keep company with sexually immoral people. And then he qualifies it. He said, Yet, I certainly did not mean with the sexually immoral people of this world. Otherwise, you'd have to take yourself. Out of the world. There is no problem with you going down to the projects and hanging around witnessing to hookers or going to a restaurant and somebody is next to you that's sexually immoral and you have a conversation with them. They're not claiming to be a brother or a sister. That's their life. They're in this world and you can't take yourself out of the world. It makes no difference. If I go out with my old high school friends and they're all a bunch of leches. That's fine. They're my old high school friends, and they don't know the Lord. As soon as one of them comes and says, hey, I'm a Christian, and they're out doing something they shouldn't be doing, I'm going to have to say, you know, I'm going to have to depart from you. Keep things in context and understand that one verse leads to the next, and in order to be kept in proper context. Okay, in the previous verse, it was noted that it was not a standalone verse in the comments. Paul had said, I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people. If that were all he had said, one might be under the misguided impression that they had to hide themselves in a cave or go to a remote island, like people do in uh, monasteries, monks, and, you know, people all over do this, okay? With no people on it or some other place like that, where else could one go to keep away from such people? Now, this is the false impression that is obtained when only that verse is cited. However, Paul continues with his thoughts here, and he will further refine them in the coming verses. His intent... It was not for believers to refrain from being around sexually immoral people or people with any other such vile habits. How could the gospel spread if this were the case? (laughs) We'd never go down to the projects, would we? We wouldn't go down there. Even Jesus ate with tax collectors and sinners. Christianity isn't supposed to be conducted in a walled fortress. Instead, it is to be proclaimed to those in the fallen world, such as to the sexually immoral. People who practice sexual acts outside of the bonds of marriage. This includes any of a host of perverse acts as well. It includes the vast majority of people in any given society, any given society. It is true that there are people who are faithful spouses in any culture, but if there are no limits imposed by God on how to conduct one's affairs, sexual immorality quickly becomes a predominant trait in most societies. I've been around the world. I can tell you that's true. To the covetous, he writes, coveting is desiring something that someone else possesses. It is the greed of the heart which is not content with what one rightfully owns. It also doesn't consider taking time to earn what is desired. Instead, it is a lust of the eyes for that which one has not worked for or which has rightly been received, such as through a gift or an inheritance. I have a right to inherit things from my dad. You have a right to give or inherit according to the law. That is not what's being spoken up here in any way, shape or form. OK, so um, it is an avaricious attitude which will eventually be realized in hatred, theft murder and so on if not reined in as a matter of fact uh what is it coveting is the basis for violating almost every one of the ten commandments if you think it through i covet and i take somebody's wife i commit adultery i covet and i lie because i wanted that and i stole it and in other words it it, it deals with almost every one of them you covet something like ahan did when the lord said this is harem Destroy this town, and he went and took something from that town when it was destroyed. It violated the first commandment and the second commandment, right? So there you go. Coveting, even though it's the last and we think it's nothing, actually is the basis for our violation of almost every one of God's precepts. To extortioners, such are those who take advantage of others for illicit gain. They may charge high rates of repayment on loans, forced payment for protection, which if not paid will end in any sort of punishment, and so on. In this type, there is little consideration for others, but rather a rapacious desire to profit off anyone for any reason. It is what movies are filled with, is people doing that type of stuff. And you think, it's just money. It's just money. And yet we treat it like it's the the greatest thing on the planet. But that is what movies, and then people see that, and they think, I want to have that, and they start doing the same things. And you've got a society full of extortioners. Then he also writes to idolaters. An idolater is one who puts anything or anyone before a right relationship with God. It can be a mere devotion or service to idols, such as is authorized even by some Christian denominations. It can be realized in prayers to or through any other person, such as praying to Mary or to the saints that deprives God of his glory. It is never mentioned anywhere in Scripture that you ever worship anyone but God and you never pray to anyone but the Lord. The high priest of Israel was the mediator between the two. He carried the the incense into the most holy place or the daily incense was in the golden altar in the holy place which wafted through the veil into the most holy place. They didn't actually get prayed to, and then transfer the prayers. They simply took what symbolized prayer and allowed that prayer to go to God. He's simply a mediator there. So when we pray, we pray to Jesus and through Jesus to God, okay? Anyway, um, uh, prayers to Mary or the saints. People can make almost anything into an idol. You can make sex an idol. You can make money an idol. Gems, artwork, cars. Oh, cars. I used to be the biggest car guy in the world. I had every... Old car that I could buy, I would buy. I'd have it for a year or two, drive her crazy, and then I'd sell it and buy another one. I loved cars. You know, you can make anything into an idol. Sport teams, sport figures. Idolatry includes the unhealthy devotion to anything or anyone, which causes our hearts and our affections to be directed away from God. Paul tells those at Corinth that although they are not to keep company with such people, he didn't mean that it included the people of the world. This is because if so, it would mean that they would need to go out of the world. Christ will take us out of the world someday. That will be his doing, not ours. We're not taking ourselves out of the world. And this is obviously impossible for us to do other than checking our own ticket. And so he will continue to explain what he meant in the verses ahead. Life application. How is the gospel going to be shared if you isolate yourself in a room away from the wicked in the world? Someone took the time to share it with you. Now it's your turn. God has you exactly where he desires you, so step out and share what you know. It could change eternity for someone else. Oh God, I know that the world is a wicked place and that I would be so safe behind a locked door, but how will the lost ever come to see your face? In you I am so rich, but others are so poor. Give me the heart to step out and share this word, to talk to those who are bound by the devil's hand, give me boldness to tell about jesus my lord so that they too can be saved to an eternity so grand Five eleven.
0: But now i am writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who calls himself a brother but is sexually immoral or greedy or an adul- adult idolater or a slanderer a drunkard or a swindler such a man do not even eat
1: oh boy see he's just qualified once again he said don't Hang around sexually immoral. Then he qualifies it. I don't mean people of the world. And then he says, I'm talking about believers, brothers. Absolutely right. This verse explicitly lays out what we need to know concerning our relationships with immoral people within the church. Though Paul had no problem with believers being with people who are morally deficient and who are not believers. If you have a morally deficient person in your family who doesn't claim to be a believer, you're entitled to go out to dinner with them, right? Friends etc. There, there's nothing in the Bible that says you can't do that. And there's probably every reason why you should, so that you can be a testimony to them. Though Paul had no problem with believers being, uh, I said that, um, now he explicitly states here what our relationship towards immoral believers should be. He says, but now I have written to you. This is his doctrine and this is his direction, but he's doing it under the authority of the Spirit, by the way. What is leaving the tip of his pen is to be considered as from the Lord because he is the apostle to the Gentiles and is speaking on the Lord's behalf. And his words are that we are, as he writes, not to keep company with anyone named a brother who, in other words, a person who claims to be saved by Jesus Christ. Okay. That's a, that's a brother. If they are named among the role of believers, whether they really are or not is irrelevant. Okay. If they say they are then that's who he's speaking about. We are to consider them in a separate category than non-believers. They are being held to a specific standard, which he will now continue as he notes, who is sexually immoral or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or an extortioner. From his list in the previous verse, he adds in two new categories. I've already given you others, but we'll define the last two. One is a reviler. This is a person who is vulgar in his words. His speech is coarse, angry, defiant, and abusive. Such a person has no problem vilifying others in their character, hurting people's feelings through speech, and demeaning those around them. Such an attitude is opposite to Christ who, when he was reviled, did not revile in return. That's 1 Peter 2 verse 23. And then he throws in also a drunkard. A drunkard is a person addicted to alcohol, not specifically any person who drinks alcohol. A drunkard has no restraint over his drinking, and it has conquered him, and his allegiance is to it and not to Christ. Concerning the moderate drinking of alcohol, there is nothing wrong with doing so in the Bible. If you disagree with that, I can't help you because we're reading the same Bible, and I can tell you that there's nothing wrong with it, okay? The entire body of Scripture bears this out. However, like any other thing, there are limits which must be exercised these will be discussed in detail in the coming uh, chapters of 1 corinthians paul says that of such a person as is named in his list they are not to keep company with them nor to even eat with such a person by fellowshipping with someone in this category who claims to be a brother then you implicitly Condoned. condone thank you their behavior you condone their behavior They will feel justified, and those around them who witness the fellowshipping will be left with the impression that what they are doing is acceptable to you and within the body of believers, hence bringing it up again because it just happened last week. They're condoning it by not saying, I am separating myself from you because you hold to this position within the church. They are implicitly condoning it. So everybody at that, that conference, all of them are guilty, all of them. It should be noted, though, that Paul terms them Believers. He never, ever in his epistles, do, what does he not ever do in his epistles? Say
0: somebody loses their salvation. Never
1: questions their salvation, and he never says that they will lose it. Ever. You will not find that in Paul's writings, but he assumes that they are saved, and they're doing this trashy, filthy behavior, and yet he assumes that they are saved. Okay? Never in his writings does he say a person can lose their salvation or his salvation. I better change that because that's mixing uh, pronouns. Sorry about that. Um, There we go. His salvation. Okay. Instead, he may suffer great harm in this life and great loss at the judgment, but his status as a believer is left between him and the Lord Jesus, and that is it. Okay? If he's not saved and he's acting in an unhealthy way, out you go. But Paul doesn't question his salvation. The purpose of Paul's words is not condemnation, but purity and holiness within the Bible. As it says in what? Leviticus 11.44. Burke? Be ye ye holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Thank you. All right. Instead, they may suffer. I said that it's um, a purity and holiness within the body and an attempt to bring about remorse and a change in the offenders. This is what is expected, and this is what we should always, always, always strive for. Life application. Who are we exalting? At what cost are we willing to bring discredit upon the name of the Lord? We must always consider what our words, actions, and associations will do and how they will appear in the eyes of others. Above all, we should strive to bring glory and honor to the name of Jesus Christ. Verse 12.
0: <laughs> what business is it of mine to judge those outside church? Are you not to judge those inside?
1: There you go. Outside and inside. Fred, have a blessed evening. All right, thank take care. A, thank you. Pay close heed to Paul's words in this verse, and remember them as you conduct your daily affairs. In all analyses of the Bible, context is of paramount importance, and it is the one aspect which is most, most, most disregarded by those who are either not Christians or who are biblically uninformed Christians, who use the Bible as a tool to set their own personal agenda concerning any given issue today's verse is an exemplary response to the misuse of what verse matthew 7 7, verses 1 and 2 matthew 7 verses 1 and 2 which i will take you to right now and i will read it to you burke can quote it if he wants okay well i'll read both of them then but you got that you were right and even preempted me even getting there. Judge not that ye that you not be judged. For with what judgment you judge, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. How many millions of times have you seen that posted on Facebook? Don't judge. I'm not one to judge. Hold up the sign at the execution. Thou shalt not judge. And what does he say right here? We'll read it again. For what have I to do with judging those who are outside? Do you not judge those who are inside? so much for that one. Okay. What is the context of Jesus' words? Who is he speaking to? Under what dispensation was he speaking? And just as notable, what does he then ask his audience to do just four verses later? He asks them to make right moral judgments. 7-6, do not throw your pearls to the swine or the pig. That's right. Oh, you're making a moral judgment right there. Context. almost every time that Matthew 7, 1 and 2 is cited, almost every time it is ripped right out of its context in an attempt to silence vocal Christians. They use scriptures against us when they don't even believe or understand the context of the scripture. Okay, they make moral judgments against perversion within society, against the government or even in the church. None of those apply to what Jesus intended, and understanding this will allow the Christian to feel secure in their proper, healthy, and God-honoring moral judgments. In confirmation of this approach, we have Paul's words which begin with, for what have I to do with judging those who are outside? His words are showing that he is not the arbiter of conduct of those outside of the church, nor does he sit in judgment of them. Hence, go have a drink with your friend, a dinner with your friend who is immoral. He's not a Christian. It doesn't matter. You're not to judge them. You can tell them about Christ, but leave it alone after that. Okay? This, uh, yeah, this does not, yeah, I said that. Okay? If Paul speaks of a non-believer as a licentious or perverted person, he is within his rights as a Christian. But he will not be the one to either forgive them or to cast them into hell. That right belongs to the Lord. On the other hand, there are these types of people within the church, they act out perversion, they are divisive, vulgar, contentious, slanderous, and so on, such as he has already mentioned. In those cases, he is not only he not only has a right to make a moral right moral judgment about them, as Jesus indicated in Matthew seven, verse six, but he also has a right to make a punitive judgment as well. And this right extends to the church as a whole. This is made clear by the words do you not judge those who are inside. It is a rhetorical question which demands a positive answer. If not they, that's right, then who? Unfortunately, in our society, Christians are trapped into believing that they are somehow to be silent over the ever-increasing moral wickedness displayed by those in society. From school teachers and college professors to actors and musicians, and all the way up to congressmen, senators, and even as some president, some more prevalent presidents of the United States of America. To be supporter of moral perversion has reached the height of fashion for the liberal left in our nation. And it has grown to epidemic proportions. And this was written, I bet you I read this four four years ago, three years ago. We're not even close to where we are today back then. All right. But Christians are continuously told to be silent based on Jesus' (coughs) words, which have been torn out of context held up as a banner for the need for tolerance against things that are wholly intolerable did you say something no okay i must have heard something in my head life application right moral judgments do not stop as one exits the door of the church instead they are to be upheld at all times and against all forms of perversion however the punitive judgment for those perversions is not at the discretion of the church god will judge the immoral And he will condemn them for their wickedness. He's not slack in this either, but is patient, allowing many to humble themselves and turn from their wickedness. Someday, though, he will turn and he will fight against them when the sins have reached their fullness. And I can't believe that they haven't reached their fullness yet. I I can't believe it, but it will happen. People think that the Lord is slack in his judgment and they just keep doing the things they do. And it's coming. A day of reckoning is coming. 513. Hey, this is the last verse of this chapter and this is a marvelous marvelous chapter this is a chapter that takes if you read it out loud it takes you less than one minute to read probably maybe a minute and a half it is a chapter that everybody should be completely familiar with and should familiarize themselves with often and yet i don't know how many people even know what 1 corinthians 5 says if you walk up to them and said do you know what's in 1 corinthians 5 I live by this chapter here. Literally, I cite it how many times in a sermon throughout the year? Probably 25 times. This is one of the most important chapters for eternal salvation, for taking care of the conduct within the church, for personal introspection. And now we're at the last verse in it. We're done with it. You have to remember what's in there now. You have to remind yourself and go back and think on it. 13. 13.
0: God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked man from among you.
1: There it is. It should have happened last week. It should have happened. And when the, what is it, the Episcopal Conference meets uh, coming up soon, whenever that is, I'll say the same thing about them. And when the Southern Baptist Conference comes together and they allow what they've allowed recently, I had a prophecy update, I'll say the same thing against them. They need to expel the wicked person from among them. As we saw with the Baptist, Southern Baptist Conference, what did they do? They've got somebody that's been in jail for sexual immorality, and now he's in another church preaching. What it was it, 300 or 400 people I said during the update? And they just allow them. And why? Oh, it's local autonomy of the churches. They are responsible as the Southern Baptist Convention, but they say it's local autonomy of the churches. And so we don't get involved in that. That is a cop-out. They know these people are in there and they're allowing them to go into a church that's as wicked as the United Methodist Church. It's as wicked as the Episcopal Church. It's as wicked as the, uh, the uh, Roman Catholic Church or any other church that allows these things. Get the people out is what they say, yeah. and we don't see it in churches. We see it in some. I don't know if Calvary Chapel holds to the line or not. I'm. I know they're very good about going line by line in the Bible. I've never attended a Calvary Chapel, but I would hope that they would hold to the line on these type of issues. I don't know if they do. Anyway, um, go ahead. Uh, where are we? Okay, so um, there's a difference between judgments and judging. We as Christians are continuously to make judgments. We are to abstain from evil, recognize evil. Identify that which is evil and work against evil. However, as a body, we are not given the authority over those outside the church. Though we may make judgments on their conduct, we are not the judges over their conduct. Societies come and go, and moral perversion is an inevitable part of them, uh, usually increasing as the society ages. Because the church is not the judge of societal wickedness, Paul begins with the word, But this is given in contrast to what he just said in the previous verse. For what have I to do with judging those also who are outside? Do you not judge those who are inside? But those outside are excluded from church judgment, but they are not free from judgment. Instead, those who are outside God judges. There's no pass for wickedness and perversion. Instead, it will be handled in a separate manner by the ultimate judge of all men. On the other hand, we are given authority over matters of disobedience within the church. It is the responsibility of the church to make judgments and then to pass judgment on those who violate the precepts laid out in Scripture. To confirm this, Paul says, Therefore, because the church is given this authority, it must use it properly and exercise it without fail. For those in Corinth, the decision is rendered by Paul Put away from yourselves the evil person. The most severe judgment of the church is directed. We can't go executing people in the church. We can't go throwing them into jail. We can't hang them up in the back by their ankles or anything like that. The most severe judgment we can give them is say, get out of this congregation. The offender is to be put out of the fellowship and regarded as a pagan to those in the church. He has no rights within the body at all. He is to be delivered over to Satan. For the destruction of the flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus, as Paul noted in verse 5. Unfortunately, a consequence of living in a society where there are many churches and denominations in any given town is that the offender in the world today can simply cross the street and sit in a different church. However, the sentence, if properly imposed on him, should hopefully be of such a weight that he would repent and turn from his wickedness. Life application. The church has a moral responsibility to uphold God's word. That's it. God's word is what has to be upheld. This is the only source that we are going to be given for what we do in this church. Nothing else. Okay, we can add in all kinds of catechisms and we can add in all kinds of rites and rituals and they have nothing to do with what God has ordained. That's all just stuff that we make up and we say we're going to do this. And pretty soon we start getting off on these tangents. The word of God is where we get our marching orders. Okay. Let us endeavor to stand boldly on the precepts of scripture and be strong in our moral convictions, lest we be found wanting in our adherence to what the Lord expects. Okay. We just got to hold to the word of God, whether we, like what it says or not and i would hope everybody in here cherishes what it says but even if we think well you know what i just don't like what that says about this particular group of people or this particular situation we have to at least be obedient to it even if we don't like it but i would hope that you would cherish it and say you know what god wrote this it must be right even if i don't understand it or agree with it in my heart my head says yes i'm going to follow it and then my heart will follow suit verse six one
0: if any of you has a dispute with another dare he take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of for the
1: saints oh boy this one gets into some touchy subjects here because at what point do you say i can take a christian to 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 court okay he's going to talk about that in this particular chapter i mean says you're taking a person to court you're going to be judging angels i'm getting ahead of myself but think that through okay there's a difference oh i'm sorry six one in chapter five Paul detailed judging for both those inside the church and noting that the church is not the arbiter of matters outside the church. Now he is turning to the same, he's taking the same thought and turning it around. The reason for this isn't explicitly stated, but it is alluded to in verse 6, 6, which is just ahead. Just as the church is to judge matters which occur within the church, the church is not to have such matters judged by those outside the church. It is a point of obvious grief to him and he will detail why as he proceeds to stress the magnitude of the issue he asks, dare any of you it is a note of rebuke or a note of extreme warning in essence as Bengal the scholar Bengal notes it implies treason against the Christian Brotherhood what will he continue or, or yeah what will he continue with is something bordering on sacred okay so we got to pay attention and so he continues dare any of you. Having a matter against another. There will always arise disputes between people. That is inevitable. This has occurred since the beginning and it will continue throughout the age. People perceive things differently and feel they have a right to a legal remedy for injustices committed against them. But within the body of believers, Paul demonstrates that when such a thing arises, they should not even dare to go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints. The absurdity of following such a course will be explained. But even before reaching those verses, it is possible to think through many reasons why this shouldn't occur. If the saints are declared righteous, then how could a fair legal decision be rendered in a court ruled by the unrighteous? Yeah, absolutely. Suppose a believer has wronged another believer and is unwilling to own up to his own wrong. What would preclude him from bribing an unrighteous judge to maintain his supremacy in the matter? We see that every day with the liberal judges in America. They're they're probably millionaires, millionaires by all the bribes they get. That they just oh yeah, and, or that maybe they don't even care. Just they just to keep up with the congressmen. yeah, just trying to keep up with the congressman. There, I, it's a completely unholy system, completely unholy system because we have allowed the infection into this government. So, okay. Um, additionally, what kind of an example would a church or church member? Besetting, if he were to take such matters before a non-believing body, what would be the perception of those non-believers concerning the power of Jesus, the charitableness between believers, or the ability for a church to handle matters of even greater weight, meaning spiritual matters, if they can't handle earthly problems? Why should they be trusted with the eternal issues that religion is supposed to handle? Before I go on, I want you to think this through clearly, though, because there are things that didn't happen at Paul's time that happened today. I get in a car accident with a Christian out there and I have insurance and he doesn't right or we both have insurance and it's debatable who is there are things that we have to think through so I don't want you to think that oh my gosh I'm in a bind here we have to think things through carefully in regard to what Paul says what is the circumstances of the day what is the circumstance but within the church you have a dispute with somebody in this church it's very clear what you are to do and to not do okay anyway Yes, I'm going to read that again. For these and other reasons, it is entirely inappropriate for believers within a church to not attempt to arbitrate their differences within the church setting. Life application. How important is a matter that you would be willing to bring discredit upon the name of Jesus? At what point does an offense justify degrading him in the presence of the unrighteous? Paul's words ask us to consider this and to act accordingly. 6-2.
0: Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? If you are to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases?
1: Wow, huh? There you go. I mean,
0: it's
1: trivial. What's that? Yeah, trivial. trivial. Well, that's right. But I mean, you got the, the, anything that's happening in here is trivial compared to well, judging the sure. entire world. That's his point. So Paul is showing the utterly absurd nature of the saints going before the ungodly for their judgments. His words confirmed that their councils are merely earthly and bear little weight. If it's something major, like you're thinking murder, that's going to be handled by the outside anyway. Okay, it's not going to be handled within the church. He's talking about things within the church that would not be handled by a civil court anyway. And you say, I'm going to sue you. That's that's what he's going at, okay? In contrast to them are the judgments of the saints. Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? Everybody here feel like a judge today? Nobody's wearing their black garments, but guess what? Okay, The very people to whom the Corinthians were going to resolve petty matters between the believers are the same people who will be judged by the saints someday. Paul is showing that the religious matters bear immensely higher weight than the earthly issues which we find so important. It is to the saints that the religious decisions will be rendered. This verse, along with so many others in the New Testament, shows that those termed saints are not decided upon by a council or by a pope, but rather it is a term for believers. Everybody got that? Saints are not the litany of saints that we hear read when the new pope comes in and all that. Totally unscriptural, okay? All who are saved by Christ are, by default, saints. All these saints will, as he says, judge the world. And so to continue to help these saints think clearly Paul continues with, and if the world will be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? The folly of those in Corinth is made clear. How can we hold to the promises of the future with all of its honor and power and not reasonably consider it in our deliberations right now? These niggling little matters, which seem so important at this time, but which actually have no true importance when considered against the backdrop of eternity, That arise between believers are minute compared to what we will someday decide they're minute so how can it be that we can't even decide them now paul asked them to think and it is all the more relevant to believers today those in corinth didn't have the new testament epistles to write on or rely on all they had was whatever instructions they received and their faulty memories now we have the whole counsel of god given to us and ready for reference decision and action and what do we do? We write books of discipline. We write catechisms and we write all these things. It has nothing to do with the word of God in order to set aside the word of God. And then when a new circumstance arises, we erase part of that book of discipline and we insert a new part and then we publish it again. And everybody gets a brand new book of discipline. They say, Oh, look, this is what guards our church. And yet we should be using the Bible. What an immensely valuable tool for guidance and yet we still neglect it and we still fall into the same error today that those in Corinth fell into prior to the publication of the Bible. Life application. What priority is scripture in your life? Just how willing to rely on God's instruction are you? Do you know more than he? Anybody? Okay, I didn't think so. How are your, are your judgments more valuable than his? We know the answers, and so let's continue to learn and apply this precious gift to our every step. Verse
0: 6-3. Do you not know that we will, be, we will judge angels? How much more the things of this life?
1: Okay, Paul said it, and therefore it must be true. We will judge angels. Hey, okay. that's what he said. There is much debate and an almost perceived fear among commentators as to what Paul is referring to here. Some say that because there is no qualifier before angels, it must be referring to the good angels. In other words, he doesn't say the fallen angels or the bad angels. Others disagree and say he must be speaking about the leaders of churches, pastors, priests, and so on. The term can be used this way, but it would make no sense at all because he's writing to a body with elders already in place, and he himself is an apostle. The plain sense of the verse demands that we look at it in no other way than that he is speaking of heavenly messengers, good or bad, that will be judged by the saints. If a sentence is to be pronounced on a fallen angel, believers will be the ones qualified to make that judgment. The good angels will be excluded from such judgments because there was no fault in them. If you understand the nature of angels, you'd understand what I'm talking about. I won't go through it again today. Thus, in actuality, judgment is rendered on both. One judgment is no judgment is necessary. The other judgment will be according to their fallen nature and evil deeds. But for what could believers judge fallen angels? What's, what are they judging them for? The answer is that they are the afflictors of believers now. They are the ones who wreak havoc among the weak, making miserable those believers who are susceptible. They are also those who completely possess non believers and torment them as demons because of the angels interactions with man redeemed man will be allowed judicial authority over them likewise the good angels have been ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation that's from the book of hebrews chapter 1 and verse 14. because of this their ministrations will be noted by those who finally see what good they wrought among men before their glorification understanding this verse from this perspective then makes all the sense in the world what we don't even perceive now will become clear to our eyes in the future god has given those who believe in an opportunity to who believe an opportunity to actively participate in a realm that we now only passively participate in and if this is so then how much more things that pertain to this life that's what paul writes in other words if we will someday judge angels who are in a completely different order of being than we are then shouldn't we be able to handle the judgments of this life in the order that we now perceive and understand? The answer begs for a positive response. Yes, we should be in control of our judgments now, not handing them over to non-believers when they fall entirely within the parameter of those who inherit eternal life and the right to judge eternal beings. Life application. Imagine the great, you know who got me started on the life applications years ago? She's sitting right next to you. That's right. Linda. Yeah. Good job, Linda. Imagine the great honor of being one of the redeemed of the Lord. And likewise, imagine the great responsibility that accompanies that honor. Let us never take lightly our duty to govern our own affairs in the church and among believers. Okay, 6-4.
0: Therefore, if you have disputes about such matters, appoint as judges even men of little account in the church.
1: Now that is, <laughs> minute, that was different. <laughs> no, that's perfect. If then you have judgments concerning these things pertaining to this life, do you appoint those who are lo- least esteemed by the church to judge? Okay, here we go. Paul is continuing on with this same train of thought concerning judgments. Who should judge matters in what context? The believers in Corinth had taken civil matters such as lawsuits, things pertaining to this life, to the pagan courts to be settled. He has shown that them the utter folly of this. And now, excuse me, he goes on with that line of thought. He says, if you, if then you have judgments, in this he is saying that these things have arisen and will from time to time arise. Uh-oh, you've got a problem here. Wow, I knew there was something wrong here. And sure, just put it right there on top of that hymnal. Gotcha. Thank you, thank you, thank you. No thank you so much. No
0: problem. Great Bless you here. now.
1: Take care. All right, come come join us for church some Sunday morning.
0: Sounds
1: good. Okay, um, let's see here. So uh, he knows a friend of mine that I went to high school with. We've been, yeah. Anyway, okay. Um, we'll go on. Um, who's been in this church too? He's out in Hawaii now, but uh, good guy. Okay, um, where was I? Six four. Um, uh, They've taken civil matters. Okay, he says then if you have judgments in this, he is saying that these things have arisen and will from time to time arise. It is natural for there to be disputes. At the time of Moses, while in the wilderness, there was a constant stream of such matters which were brought to him. This is recorded in Exodus 18, for example. It was at a time when people were living in tents and not even settled into a home with a land and a large number of possessions. How much more is it expected that such things would arise among those living a regular life in a community? And so when such judgments concerning things pertaining to this life, that's Paul's words, would arise, There would be need to be a judge. It is inevitable and natural. But who will be the judge? Who would be chosen to preside over such petty matters of this life? Paul wants them to think the issue through based on what he said in the previous verse, that as believers, we shall judge angels. And so he says the following words, which need a careful evaluation. Do you appoint those who are least esteemed by the church to judge? The verb for appoint is the Greek word It actually is unclear whether Paul wrote it in the imperative mood, meaning a command, or in the indicative mood, meaning interrogatively, asking a question. And so a couple possibilities arise. It could be one of the two. One, if it's a command, he is telling them, you are to appoint those who are the least esteemed by the church, meaning the least knowledgeable in the church would still be preferable to appointing unbelievers for such judgments. Okay? Two, if interrogatively, he is asking them if they would actually dare to appoint those who are least esteemed by the church, meaning unbelievers. The debate over which is his intent has continued on since the letter was written, and scholars do disagree. But in the end, the thought is clear either way. It is a rebuke to them for their unsound practices. It could be that Paul was intentionally ambiguous in his wording so that we would look at this from the from different angles and still come to the same conclusion the practice of going outside the church for judgments was wrong and even the least informed of the church would be preferable to the most knowledgeable outside of it life application disputes within the church and among fellowshipping believers should be mediated by those within the church it is a concept which seems all but forgotten today but When thought of from the eternal perspective, it is one that certainly makes the most sense. Okay? And because we have something that smells so good sitting here, we're going to close early. The people online, here, let me whack some over to you guys. Okay, there you go. And then uh, order, order from your local pizza person. Yes, absolutely. So anyway, we hope that everybody had a good time at the study online. We love you. We'll say a prayer, and then we'll say goodbye to you. Heavenly Father we thank you for this wonderful smelling food and we ask that you bless it we thank you for the class that we had today and thank you so much for chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians which is such an important part of our whole counsel of God not to elevate any part above another but to just understand that it is very important and it gives such wonderful truths in it and Lord we'd like to add our dear Mabel into the prayers today because she's not feeling well as well and we'd also like to give a praise uh somebody in here i'm not going to give his name because i didn't ask for permission of it but he went for a uh, uh evaluation yesterday his body is uh, looking better than it did during his last evaluation he's uh feeling better and we're very happy about that we would pray that you would continue to help him heal until he is fully back to a hundred percent and uh no longer worried about the issues of the body but rather the things of god at all times which he is anyway and lord we thank you so much for who you are and what you've done and the love that you have lavished upon us because of the great love that you have for us and you gave jesus who came to live the life that we can't live and give his life in exchange for our filthy sins thank you for that god we love you and we praise you for what you have done in christ jesus our lord and so it's in his name we pray amen, amen. amen. all right let me back this baby up here say goodbye to those folks online all right yeah pizza time that's right